That's why we're here this morning. Because God's word is a firm foundation for our souls. And if you look again at, at the song that we just sang, that even though all hell should endeavor to shake us, even if Satan comes with every arsenal that he possesses, every weapon in his hand, every strategy to try to deceive and bring us away, that even the strongest forces of hell can't even vibrate the foundation that we have in Christ, that our foundation in him is firm, that God will never forsake us. That's why we're here this morning, because God is a holy, complete, good, unchanging God who has been inexplainably, amazingly gracious to us. My name is John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. It brings me joy to bring you God's word this morning. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, go and open it. The Hebrews chapter 5. Just a forewarning, if you're wondering if this is going to be a Mother's Day sermon, I got nothing for you moms. Uh, this passage has very little to say about mothers. Uh, I've been going through the book of Hebrews, and God in his province has decided that today would be a passage that has nothing to do with mothers and doesn't have a lot of nice things to say. Uh, but I'll trust that the Lord's word is true and that it has encouraging words and, and important and necessary words for us this morning. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, to Hebrews 6, verse 3. So Hebrews 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 3. Here now as I read, Hebrews 5, 11. We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain, since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. Let's pray. Lord, we know that your word does have a great deal to say. So we ask, God, that you would guard us from sinful laziness that blocks our ears from being able to hear the good, glorious word that you have to say to us. So we ask, God, that you would speak. We want to listen. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is one of the best, if not the best animated film ever made. I remember leaving the theaters first time I saw it. I was so excited to tell everyone about the insane cinematography, the art on literally every single frame, the storyline, the, the music, the New York of it all. So I became a Spider-Verse evangelist. And friends would go to see it. And they would tell me that they saw him. When, when I asked them what they thought, they would look at me and they would say, it was good. It was good? For me, their indifference was an insult. You see, if you're one of those people, I'm, I'm sorry that your eyes are so blind to not see the glories of Into the Spider-Verse. And plenty of other films that I love. You see, when, when we love something, 
and someone's blind to see that same glory of that thing that we love is frustrating, isn't it? Not just because the person is wrong, but because they're missing out on the beauty that you see. And what's happening here in this, in this passage is that the author of Hebrews is frustrated. And the, and the root of the frustration comes from the people's blindness to the beauty of Christ. He wants to show more of Christ's glory. That's what we've been thinking about as we've been walking through this book of Hebrews. And it's been encouraging, hasn't it? About God's supremacy in his son Christ and what he has done for us. About Christ's empathy to us in our weakness, his, his sympathy, his descent. right? Him becoming qualified to be our savior through suffering. And all those things are meant to be an encouragement to us, right? Things that we're supposed to delight in, things that we're supposed to see the glory of. In this passage, because the author loves Jesus so much, this, this gracious Savior that we talked for the past couple weeks, because he loves this Christ, because he sees Jesus' beauty so much, he has a photo-negative response of frustration and rebuke to people who can't see it. People who can't see it. So the tone of this sermon is going to be harsher than the others that we had in the book of Hebrews. And it's not because I don't want you to think about the loveliness of Christ, but because if you see the glory of Christ, if you see his beauty, if you trust in this gracious slave, Savior in your life, and people around you can't see that beauty, it should frustrate you. And if you don't see that beauty yourself, it should concern you. So here's the main command for you this morning. Super formal. Grow up, you lazy baby. That's the main command for us this morning. Grow up, you lazy baby. So point number one is going to be the problem. You're a lazy baby. Point two, the solution, grow up. So again, number one, you're a lazy baby. Number two, grow up. If you're a visitor, super glad that you're here. <laughs> this is some in-house baseball for Christians that are walking the Christian life. We'll, we'll talk to you more directly a little bit later in the sermon. Let's start number, with number one here, the problem. You're a lazy baby. You're a lazy baby. Verse 11. We have a great deal to say about this and is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. The author of Hebrews has been talking about some difficult stuff throughout this book of Hebrews, right? A lot of the sermons that I've been going through in the book of Hebrews has been covering really complex ideas about the supremacy of Christ and his divine and Davidic sonship, about striving for achieving the promised rest as we walk through the wilderness of this life. And in the last sermon, we thought about Jesus' role as a great high priest. And at the end of verse 10, the author notes that Jesus is declared a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's a super obscure character if you look at the corpus of the old testament and he goes on after this passage to talk more about who melchizedek is what it looks like to be a great high priest and and that role but we're not here to talk about that in this sermon because instead of diving into what's honestly really complex subject matter the author takes time to recognize that the stuff that he's talking about is really hard and he has a great deal to say about this being Jesus, the subject of the, of the whole letter. But there's a problem. And the problem is probably different than what we might expect. See, he doesn't place the problem with how complicated this subject of Jesus is, that the stuff that he's talking about is really hard. That's not why it's difficult. The reason... Why this subject matter is difficult is because of how sluggish we are. How sluggish we are. Rather than admitting that the topic is too hard, he accuses them of being too lazy. Notice that he doesn't say that you're too stupid. He says that you're too lazy. 
Do you understand the difference between stupidity and laziness? If you're too stupid, then there's really nothing you could do about it. You're just kind of dumb. Right? Stupidity is an issue of ability. There's not much you could do to kind of undo your own dumbness. So if you feel discouraged because you feel like you're too dumb to understand things about Christianity, I have really good news for you this morning. Uh, you're not stupid. Right? You're not. You're not too dumb. You're able to understand more than you think. And so don't be too discouraged by the difficulty of that subject matter. We'll talk more about that later. But the author doesn't say that we're too dumb. He says that we're too lazy. And while that's initially comforting, if you think about that for another second, it actually gets at something more severe. See, if you're too lazy, then that means that the issue isn't with your mind, right? With being smart enough to kind of understand what's going on. The issue isn't the mind, but rather the heart. See, it's not that we can't understand, but that we don't want to understand. That we don't want to understand. We don't care enough. I mean, have you ever been asked to do something that you don't want to do? Like helping someone move and just so happens to land perfectly on your day off. <laughs> Running errands. Even taking out the garbage. When we're trying to get out of it, what do you say? You usually say something along the lines of, oh man, I can't. I'm so sorry. And sometimes we legitimately can't help out. But sometimes we can. But we say that because we just don't want to. We just don't want to. We cloak our indifference by claiming inability. We say we can't. But the reality is that we won't, because the truth is we could, but we don't want to. Most things in life that are valuable require work, but we do it because we know that's worth it, right? We work in our jobs because we understand that there's value that comes out from that type of work. We care for our children because we know that they're worth our effort, and here, what the author is trying to say is that there are beauties of Jesus. There are glories to be found, real treasures about Jesus that aren't easy. They take brain work. They require us to take the time to focus, to think, to devote our attention. And they won't be available to you if you're lazy. To put it another way, laziness is not a problem of ability, but of affection. Laziness is not a problem of ability, but affection. If you don't want to know Jesus, then do you really love him? Do you really love him? No one ever says, I love my wife so much that I never talk to her. Or... I love food so much, I'll never eat it. Or I love that movie so much, I'll never watch it. Because our affection affects our devotion. Our affection affects our devotion. If we really love, then that affects what we do. We spend time invested in things that we love. Not because there aren't difficulties, but because we see the value in what we're doing. Right? If you love Jesus, then know him, then really know him, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I could add a footnote to that, where your heart is, your mind will be also. Where your heart is, your mind will be also. Let's look at the first part of verse 12 here. Although by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. The author contrasts where the Hebrews ought to be with where they are. Where they ought to be with where they are. They ought to be able to teach others God's word, but instead they need people to teach them 
the basics of God's revelation again. And the word used here for basic principles is a reference to the Greek alphabet. In other words, while the Hebrews ought to be teachers, people who are helping others around them, the author is saying that they're literally dumber than a fifth grader. They don't even know their ABCs. Do you see the expectation of the author? He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You see, there was a time where it was appropriate for them to be learning the basics about the faith. Right, to be learning about the principles of God's revelation. But what the author is saying is that that time has passed. He expects that they would progress to a level where they would be able to teach others also. The expectation for a Christian, if you are one, is that you would grow. Now, if you're a young believer, don't be discouraged at all the things that you don't know. I just want you to tell you on the front and trust the process. Right? Don't be discouraged at all the things that you don't know. Rejoice in what you do know. And keep growing. Keep loving Jesus. Keep seeing him and, and delighting in him and working to learn more about him. But if you've been a Christian for, for a while and you don't know much more than you did five years ago, you ought to be concerned. You ought to be concerned. The expectation here is that you would grow. Even more than that, by this time, there's an expectation not only that you'd be able to grow, but that you would be able to teach others also. That you would grow in your knowledge so much that you could help someone else follow Jesus. I don't think that the author here is saying that everyone ought to be rising up to some kind of official office of teacher. Kind of like you have your members that are all young Christians and then if they get mature enough, they kind of attain this title of teacher. I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. It's not like teachers are just more mature kind of members. The author of Hebrews is talking about Christians that are teaching other Christians. Right? Christians teaching other Christians. Normal, everyday believers helping believers follow Jesus. You see, because there's a point in everyone's walk in Christ as you grow that you achieve a level of competence where there's enough people below you in terms of the walk or behind you, if you think of it kind of like the walk of Christ, where you're able to teach and guide them in following Jesus, where you're able to help them follow Jesus. Now, at this church, we do a really good job of teaching that everyone ought to be discipling everyone. And that's absolutely true. I'm not trying to negate that at all, right? You can disciple the person next to you by encouraging them in God's word, by rebuking them of sin through sharing your own struggles as, as you try to follow Christ. And in that sense, you are absolutely able to disciple everyone and you should absolutely do that. I'm not saying don't do that. But here in verse 12, there's an expectation of competence, right? An expectation that you actually have some skills that you've developed over the years, right? A certain wealth of knowledge in which you're able to pass it on to other people. So in other words, the author is expecting regular, everyday Christians to be growing in their knowledge of God in such a way that someday you might actually have something of substance to contribute to other Christians around you, to be able to actually teach them something worthwhile. And what the author is saying is that if you're not growing, you have nothing to give. You can't teach because there's nothing for you to say. You don't know what to do. Not only that, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. Again. See, if you're too lazy to grow, if you're just kind of navel-gazing and reclining in your lazy boy in your Christian life, you're not just stunting your growth. You're not just kind of stagnant. You're decaying. You're decaying. It says here that you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. And the reason why it says again there is because you don't remember it. You don't remember it. I mean, imagine sitting in kindergarten 
and seeing the letter S as a superhero like I did, learning your ABCs and then forgetting and then having to relearn it again and then forgetting it again and relearning and forgetting and relearning and forgetting and God is looking at you and he's saying, you're supposed to be the one who's teaching others. Why are you learning your ABCs? So where are you? Are you able to teach others? Are you growing in your Christian walk? Are you walking towards maturity? Or did you forget how to spell? In order to be filled up enough to pour yourself out, you need to wake up. You need to understand. That's what the author of Hebrews is urging here in verse 12. Let's, let's read on from the second half of verse 12 here. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. And will distinguish between good and evil. You see, those that are inexperienced are like babies who need milk, right, to, to feed them. But those that are mature are those who are able to discern between the difference of good, <laughs> good and evil, and they get to have real solid food. So, so what does it mean to be able to discern the difference between good and evil, right? Like what's this a attribute that we see about mature people, the people that are able to teach others? Well, let's go ahead and leave a finger in Hebrews 5 and flip back in our Bibles to Philippians 1. Philippians 1. I think if we look at Philippians 1, we'll see a similar theme in Paul's letter to the Philippians, where he talks about this difference of, of good and evil. And we'll go to one other place after this. So, so what is Paul praying to the Philippians? Let's, let's look at chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, or through 11. Paul says this. He says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may be able to approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's praying for the Philippians, and, and what does he pray? He prays that their love would grow. But how does it grow? It grows in what? In verse 9. In, in knowledge and every kind of discernment. That, that the way that love grows in this verse here is through knowledge and discernment. That, that as you learn more about who God is, right? As you think about things that take work to understand, and learn more through his word, that your love expands into that new knowledge that you receive. And the effect of that, the effect of learning, your, your love growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, is that you're able to approve the superior things. So that when, when two things kind of come up in front of you and, and you're trying to evaluate it as a Christian, that using your, your love that's equipped with knowledge, you'll be able to look at those two things and know that this is the superior one, right? Or that this is sin, that this is what's good. To know the difference between good and evil. And in approving superior things to be found pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So how do you know the difference between good and evil? You know the difference by knowing, by knowing, by taking your love, your desire to glorify God in your life and letting that propel you towards godliness. And knowledge and discernment is the compass that points you where to go. That, that when a fork in the road comes and you look at two different paths, you can use your compass and know the difference between the good and the evil one. And if you don't grow in knowledge, if you let your principles decay, 
then you don't have any sense of direction. You don't know the difference between good and evil. And that's precisely where Satan comes in to attack. I mean, think about the Garden of Eden. What's the first thing that the serpent says? Did God really say? Did God really say? And if you're not growing in knowledge, if you're letting your principles kind of wither away, and Satan comes to you and says, did God really say? How will you know? You can't. And it's in that position that Satan can swoop in and deceive you. John Piper says that the devil is an expert at using drifters to do nothing. He loves your inaction. Satan delights in your passivity. And when the time comes, he will use it to destroy you. Unless you grow up. Unless you grow up. Maybe one reason why your love for the Lord feels stagnant is because you're not growing in your knowledge of him. Like someone who's completely absent from their marriage, wondering why their love has grown cold. Do you love God? Then know him. Then know him. The call in the book of Hebrews is to grow up. If you're not able to discern, if you're not growing in the knowledge of God, the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 is calling you a lazy baby. He's calling you a lazy baby. The inexperience of righteousness is because you're an infant. You don't know what you're doing. Now, last Friday, I got to hang out with the pastoruses, and I held Nathaniel while he drank his milk, and just as I know, I got permission to use this illustration, right? So I'm holding Nathaniel. Nathaniel's drinking his milk, so I'm holding him. Nathaniel's trying his best with his baby hands to hold the bottle in his mouth as he's chugging away. And a few times he decides that he's done eating, and he kind of chucks the bottle down, gets milk all over my pants. Happy Mother's Day. Um, so I'm picking it up, I'm making rocket noises as I'm zooming the bottle back, and he's giggling, and then he, like, accepts the bottle and starts to drink again. Now, let's say that Alyssa goes out to walk their dog, comes back inside, and I'm there on the couch holding the bottle, feeding Jose, going, right, bringing the bottle in, and he's giggling, and then he decides to receive the milk. That's ridiculous, right? And even though it's funny as a thought, and like I said, I did get permission to share that, right? Even though it's funny as a thought, imagine for a second if that was actually a reality. Like imagine if that actually was what was happening, right? An adult that's too stubborn to even pick up a bottle to drink. An adult unwilling to get up and work and spends his time on his belly wailing and crying because he wants his bottle. That's a tragedy. That is a tragedy. And if you're not growing, your infantile state is not a convenience. This isn't a place where you could just presume upon God's grace. It's actually a tragedy. And it's sad, especially because there's so much good that God can do with you. You are so precious to him. Think about all the people that you could be encouraging. Good gospel work that could be done. Unbelievers hearing the word, godliness increased, marriages strengthened, children taught. And sometimes we look around at the diligent work of, of others around us and we, we ask ourselves, why won't God use us like that? And the truth is, brothers and sisters in Christ, you can, you can. And God wants to use you that way. Maybe the issue isn't that you can't, but that you won't. Maybe that you won't. Maybe the reason why we can't put on our pants is because we're still in our diapers. We're not growing because we're not knowing. And knowing's too difficult because we're too lazy. And because of our laziness, 
The end result of this, according to the author of Hebrews, is that we can't see more and think more and hear more about Jesus. We're plugging our ears and, and blocking our minds from the one that we claim to love the most. There's so much about Jesus to say. So much to see. So much treasure to rejoice in. But it's difficult to explain. Because instead of proactive, mature adults, we're lazy babies. And the author of Hebrews is calling us to get out of the cribs of our sin and to live out a mature life in Christ. That's the problem, that we're lazy babies. We're lazy babies. Here's, here's point number two, the solution. Solution. Grow up. Grow up. Let's look at verses one and two in, in Hebrews chapter six. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ and going on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. If God permits. The author is calling us this morning to move on from the elementary teachings about Christ and move on to maturity. To move on to maturity. And he lists the elementary things here. Right? Repentance, faith, ritual washings, which is the same word for baptism. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And all those things are elementary or primary or basic. Now, just because something's elementary doesn't mean that's unimportant. Right? Just because something's elementary or basic doesn't mean that's unimportant. In fact, I go as far as to say that if something is elementary, it's actually essential to the other things. Right? It's a necessary thing for you to know. You need to know the basic truths about Christianity and the gospel before you can go deeper into its glories. So if you're not a Christian here and you're with us this morning, thank you for putting up with my sass behind this pulpit. Right? We just want you to know the gospel. We really want to major on the main things for you. You see, the, the good news that, that I have for you this morning is that you and I are not perfect. In fact, more than that, we've, we've actually been sinful because we've rebelled against a holy God. And because of that, we deserve to be punished in hell for eternity because of our sin. But God, in his kindness, sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. He lived the perfect life that you and I can never live. And on the cross, God poured out the punishment that you and I deserve, that, that wrath, that punishment on him. And Jesus died. But on the third day, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, paying that penalty on our behalf in full. And in light of that good work that Christ has done for you, God wants you to do, the, to do the things that you see there in verse 1. He wants you to repent or turn away from your sin. That's really the idea behind repentance is turning away from your sin, the rebellion against God. And even there, repentance from your dead works. You're kind of half-hearted, mediocre, not effective attempts at being good enough. He wants you to even turn away from that. And to turn towards God in faith. And faith is really the same word for trust. So you're, so you're turning away from your sin and you're trusting in the good work that Jesus has done for you. And if you do that, you're going to receive a new heart. The Bible says that, that those who believe in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit, which is what I think is symbolized with the laying on of hands there. It's kind of a, a picture of the Spirit coming on someone. And then you can be baptized, which is a public pronouncement of the salvation that God's want for you in Christ. And if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, the promise is that you're going to be raised from the dead. That there actually be hope for you beyond this life. That you can live for eternity with God, knowing that your sins are completely forgiven. Not because of the good stuff that you did. Christianity is really not focused on you just doing good stuff to kind of be good enough for God. But because of Jesus' good work that he did for you. That's what we want for you. We want you to believe in that good news. And feel free to talk to anyone around you or talk to me about what it looks like to follow Jesus. That is the main thing. 
That really is the main thing. And if anyone isn't there yet, if anyone doesn't understand those things, those kind of six things that you see listed out in verses one and two, it's worth us parking there and staying there and, and just pitching tents until that foundation is laid. That foundation needs to be solid because if you want to build anything on top of that and that foundation is rocky, it's going to crumble. That's the main elementary thing. But if you're already there, that's already set, then you're not supposed to stop there. Not supposed to stop there. I worked for two weeks at CBU School of Engineering. Don't ask me why I got fired. Anyway, one week, I was tasked with moving some equipment for their civil engineering wing, and I walked around with a professor and his teaching assistants as they were looking at cylinders of concrete being pressed by these machines. So I'm looking at, at basically just a cylindric rock, right? There's this metal thing pressing down on it. And all they did was look at it for an uncomfortable amount of time. And then the professor would mutter something to a TA and they'd be taking copious notes. And then the professor kind of gets up, kind of blinks his eyes a couple times from the meditative state that he walked into staring at that piece of concrete. And he said, we'll check it again in two weeks. These civil engineers, I'm sorry if there's any civil engineers in this room. These civil engineers dedicated their whole lives to staring at concrete, at concrete. Now we're not civil engineers. Our fascination is not with concrete, but the things on top of concrete, like houses or buildings or parks or, or other things that you can do. In order to build something good, you need a solid foundation, right? You need to make sure that that foundation is secure. That's absolutely essential. But imagine if I wanted to build a house and I set a solid foundation. It's beautiful. It's pristine. There's no cracks. I, I took all the lessons from the civil engineering nerds. And then after that foundation is laid, I put another layer of concrete. And I let that harden. After that, I put on another layer. And another layer. And another layer. I would not have a house. I would have a cube of concrete. And my impenetrable cube of concrete still wouldn't be as thick as my skull, would it? See, the value of a good foundation is what's built on top of it. What's built on top of it. The value of knowing the gospel, of knowing repentance, faith, baptism, the work of the spirit, resurrection, eternity, these essential basic things is so that you can know more than that. That you can know more than that. That's the point of the gospel, not just our salvation. <coughs> that is absolutely essential. But just like John Piper said it together for the gospel that we were at, um, for a lot of us, if it stops there, then we miss out on all that God has for us. And what does God have in store for us, Christians? Jesus. He has in store for us Jesus. The author of Hebrews wants to talk to us more about Christ. That's the focus. That's the blessing. And we get to build on the foundation of our salvation and look at the end of our salvation. And we're not just saved from hell, but we actually get to know God. You get to know the almighty, all-powerful, infinite, good, majestic God. That's the good news for us. We get to know him. We get to know and rejoice in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews wants to give us more Jesus. He wants to give us Christ. So we should leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. But moving on from the elementary teachings about Christ doesn't mean that we move on from Christ. It's not like we move on from Jesus and kind of graduate from Jesus and get to think about other kind of ethereal, weird, like spiritual stuff. That's not the idea. It's not like Christ is at the foundation and then we kind of stomp on top of him as we, as we build a house on top. Rather, when we leave these elementary things, what we get to do is we get to see more of Jesus. We get to see more of him. 
You get to know Jesus in ways that you, you can't if you stay in elementary teaching. See, church history talks about this concept uh, called the beatific vision, right? And the idea of it is that as we get to know more about Jesus, right, as we meditate on his word, as we actually kind of work to think about difficult things that take brain work for us to think about, we get to see a vision of Christ in his beauty, his glory, his splendor in a way that you can't if you're lazy about it. And that beauty would so enrapture us that we become more like Jesus. As we become more like Jesus, it stirs our appetite and we get more hungry, right? To, to see more of Jesus. As we do, we see more of him and we're enraptured by his beauty. And so we want to study more. It keeps going and going and going as we spiral up to the glories of Christ. And friends, that is heaven. That's what heaven's going to be like, an eternity of us seeing more and more and more of Jesus. And if you don't want that now, what makes you think that you're going to like that later? Right? God wants us not just to enjoy God later when we're in glory, but to enjoy him now. And the author of Hebrews is offering us real, solid food a well-smoked brisket of delicious goodness for us to enjoy. And if you value Christ, how would you not want that? If you love Jesus, getting to know him is about as much work as it is getting up from your sofa to the dinner table. It's a joy for us. So here's some practical application for us as we think about moving on to maturity. Okay, so these aren't necessarily in the verses, just some practical tips for you as you think about moving on towards maturity, right? Going after Jesus. Number one, fight the love versus knowledge false dichotomy. Fight the love versus knowledge fight uh, false economy. I'm, I'm sure that, that you've heard of this before, right? People saying like, man, knowledge is great and all, but what really matters is love, Right? What really matters is loving Jesus. It's not just about learning facts. It's about knowing Jesus. And, and there's a degree to which that's true. And so I'm going to walk through a couple passages here. But I want to encourage you not to make enemies out of friends. Not to make enemies out of friends. Let me quickly overview a few texts that are used to pit love and knowledge against one another. One is 1 Corinthians 8. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. 1 Corinthians 8. Um, says, knowledge what? Puffs up. And love what? Love builds up. Sounds pretty conclusive, right? Knowledge makes you arrogant. Love builds others up. But I don't think Paul is trying to make a comprehensive statement about all knowledge and all love. That's not what he's getting at. Okay? And the reason is because 1 Corinthians 8 is about people that are eating food sacrificed to idols. So you have two dudes, okay? One's smarter than the other. Okay? One guy knows from the Bible, from studying it, that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, right? The other guy doesn't know that yet. And so when he sees this dude eating food sacrificed to idols, he's, his conscience is getting seared. He's thinking that he has to sin in order to get into that. And what Paul is saying to a smart guy Right, is that if you know this fact, right, if you have this knowledge, but you're still not caring for this dude that doesn't know, then you don't really know anything. Right? You're not actually loving this dude. Right? Because if you really loved him, then you would be using your knowledge properly. Does that make sense? So, so he's not saying deliberately make yourself stupid so that you could love other people. He's saying that knowledge is a tool that's not, supposed to use, that's not supposed to be used to break other people down, but it's supposed to be used in love to build other people up. Does that make sense? Has, so that's the first one. That's 1 Corinthians 8. The second example would be the church of Ephesus, right, in Revelation 2, right, um, right where the accusation from Christ to this church is that you've forgotten your first what? Your first love. And people will say things like, it doesn't matter how much you know if you don't love God. And that's true, right? Like, if you don't love him, then, like, knowing a bullet list of facts is kind of useless. 
But I just want to make a little textual correction here that if you actually go to Revelation 2, like if you want to, like after lunch and you're sitting down and you're thinking if you're bored before you get like on TikTok or Twitter, like just go to Revelation 2, right? Read that letter to Ephesians and, and you'll realize pretty quick that the stuff that, that Jesus lists before accusing them of losing their first love has nothing to do with knowledge actually. It's primarily to do about obedience, right? Like the only part that has to do with knowledge is kind of refuting false teaching. That's one small part of a long list of things that they did correctly, right? They obeyed God, right? Um, they're refuting false teachers and, and on and on it goes. And what Jesus is saying is that they're doing the right things, but they forgot their first love. So in other words, Revelation 2 is not primarily about love being more important than knowledge, even though honestly I would agree with that, right? I agree that that's a true statement. Love is more important than knowledge, right? But that love is more important than doing obedience without any love in it, right? Just kind of going through the motions and doing the right things. If you're doing that, then Jesus wants to tell you, you've forgotten your first love. Make sure you love him. He's not saying... I'm going to not learn more about this guy I love, so I love him. That doesn't make any sense. Does that, does that make sense, what I'm saying there? So, remember the function of knowledge and love in Philippians 1. Let Philippians 1, 9 and 10 really kind of be the guide in how love and knowledge work together, right? Because they do. If something's imbalanced, right? Let's say that you have more love than knowledge or, or more knowledge than love, right? The issue isn't with love and knowledge itself, but the way that you're sinfully misusing those two things, okay? So don't use love as kind of a club to excuse your idiocy, right? Don't use knowledge as an excuse to not love your neighbor. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Instead, Love your brother and sister in Christ and let knowledge be used as a tool to propel you, to equip you to be able to do those things. That's number one, fight the knowledge versus love, false dichotomy. Here's number two, study the word. Study the word. And don't just study, but stick with it. Thank you for sticking through the sermon so far. Right? Come every Sunday eager not just to find the easiest kind of streams of milk where you're kind of like, okay, like, yeah, like that was good and easy. I got that. I can kind of ignore the rest of the sermon. I got my one piece of encouragement for the week. I'll be covered during the five minute takeaway period. I'm good. Don't do that. Right? Work to eat real food, stuff that takes real thinking, right? If you want to do that really practically, read the passage before you come on Sunday, right? Most of the time we know what we're going to preach that Sunday right? Read the passage beforehand. Ask questions about the passage that, 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 that spark curiosity in you, right? Think proactively, right? Uh, when, even when you're talking in your takeaway times, absolutely talk about things that can apply in your life really practically. If I were to add to that, it's also totally fine to wrestle with thoughts that you're having about the passage, to work it out with the person next to you, to be saying like, hey, like, like I saw this aspect of it. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit and think through that out loud with you. That would be a good use of your time rather than just saying, well, God knows, and then moving on. Number three, read good Christian authors. Read good Christian authors. If you think of the mysteries of Christ, right? The, the glory that the author of Hebrews wants to show us, like a house that gets built on this foundation, right? And scripture, right? This book is the forest where you go to grab kind of good lumber and pieces to be able to assemble this house. Then good Christian authors are like experienced builders, right? They have kind of constructed their own homes already. They're able to tell us where to look in scripture to gain insight and encouragement from the Bible, Right, so I'm not telling you, go read John Piper so you could just agree with everything Piper says. Right? I'm, not, I'm not telling you read Richard Sibbs just so you agree with everything Richard Sibbs says. I'm saying use them as guides as they walk through the forest with you. Right? And we do this already, already in our lives. Right? We have older, more mature Christians that read Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 5 and they go, yeah, I'm teaching other people. And they're teaching you and they're helping you follow Jesus. But they're able to guide you through that forest, help you build that house. I'm saying that's awesome. I'm also saying that there are dead people that are still able to help you. 
right? There are Christian authors that have made their thoughts the most important things that they deem to be more, most valuable and what the Holy Spirit's taught them in their lives and they put it down on paper. I mean, why would you not want that, right? That's a valuable thing. It's a valuable thing. For example, on this topic of affection and knowledge, let me just read you, right? Uh, we had a Puritan reading group where we were going through the bruised read and it was super fun, even though like the group kind of whittled as time went on, right? We had a faithful remnant at the end, right? Here's a quote of Richard Sibbs on this relationship between affections and knowledge, between love and knowledge, okay? Let's let Sibbs kind of lead us through the forest here. It says, and because knowledge and affection mutually help one another, it is good to keep up our affections of love and delight by all sweet inducements and divine encouragements. For what the heart likes best, the mind studies most. Those that can bring their hearts to delight in Christ know most of his ways. The stuff that I talked about earlier in my sermon was largely that, twisted, modernized, so you would be able to hear it. what I do? I took it from Sibs, right? I let him guide me through the forest so I know how to talk about it, right? You can use these faithful Christian brothers and sisters to guide you, right, to help you build your house. So read other Christians. Benefit especially from centuries of Christians before you that have loved Jesus, right? Lastly, Keep at it. Keep at it. Or keep going. Sometimes we get discouraged because when we start to go past elementary things, we realize how hard learning can be. Right, maybe you're listening to this sermon and you, you're like, dude, I've been trying to go on to maturity for a while. I'm just stuck in the mud. Right? I want to encourage you that it is going to be hard. Right? If it were easy, then it'd be part of the elementary things, right? The basic things that we'd grasp right away. But the, but the way to get through that difficulty isn't waiting until you're skilled enough, right? Or giving up altogether, but actually pressing through, pressing through, okay? In other words, what I'm trying to get you to say is that you don't need a PhD and a Bible degree. Honestly, that doesn't help that much anyway. Right? You don't need to become an expert before you start doing things. I'm saying go into it while you don't know what you're doing, right? And keep getting better as you keep pressing into it. Keep leaning in. Paul Miller, right, uh, has a book on how to read the Bible. It's super basic. And he compares learning Jesus as something that you can do, right? He says, all of you are able to do it. And he has one reason why all of you are able to do it. And the reason is because you watch Netflix. What does he mean, you watch Netflix, Right? He says that if you watch a good TV drama, right, if you're watching a good television show, right, there are tons of things at the beginning of the show that don't make sense, right? Mysteries that need solving, questions that you have, right, as you're walking through the story. But you keep watching. Why? Because you trust the show, right? You, you trust that as you keep pressing through that show, that things are going to be revealed and that you're going to see things that you didn't see before, right? In other words, there's trust as you go into it, as you press through it, that you might not understand it right now, but you will later, that you will later. In the same way, keep going through scripture, right? Keep pressing through scripture, press next episode on the Bible, there's an illustration that a professor gave about the fog as you study scripture and particularly as you learn the language of Greek, but I think it kind of works for everything. A lot of the time when we try to learn something new, there's a fog of confusion that kind of stays with us. So you're staring at a page of a difficult book on a topic, you're staring at it and none of it makes sense, right? It's all Greek to me, right? And that fog of confusion kind of follows us as we go. But when we look back and you look at the stuff that you learned two or three or four weeks ago, those things make sense. Right? You, you understand those things, even though when you were learning those things, you were confused. And the encouragement from the professor and the one that I want to give to you is that if you feel like you're in the fog, trust the process. 
right? Trust the process. You might not get it right now, but you might understand it three weeks from now, right? That shouldn't discourage you from pressing in because even though right now you might not see it, you're probably growing more than you think you are. Probably growing more than you think you are. I remember being a freshman at Bible college and it felt like I was trying to drink water from a fire hydrant, just like my head's about to blow off from all the stuff that's coming in. And book after book after book after book. And, and to be honest, I didn't understand any of it. Right? Um, I, and, and I remember recently rereading some of those books and thinking, like, did I learn anything? Like, I don't remember any of this stuff. Right? It was like I was chucking tennis balls at a brick wall, hoping something would stick. I'm just going. Right, But as I kept at it, by the time my sophomore year began, I began to understand some things. I began to understand and wrap my head around some concepts. Big, big words that had more than four syllables started to make sense to me. I began to understand. Because immersing myself in the hard stuff helped me understand the hard stuff. So I just want to encourage you to keep at it. Keep going and trust in God's good work. And the end of this section, the author of Hebrews resolves to get up and do this good work. Let's look at that last verse together. Hebrews 6, 3. And we will do this if God permits. If God permits. Here's the, here's the resolution, right? The resolve that we are going to do it, right? When I, when I preach from Hebrews again, which... I don't know, it could be next month, could be next year, right? Like, what we're going to do is we're going to do that hard work, right? We're going to put our heads into that mud and fight through it, right? Press through that, that knowledge. And that's the resolve that the author has. So, so let me just say this really clearly, that that if God permits is not saying, I don't know, he might, right? The idea is that God will permit, right? The author is hopeful enough that you're going to resolve to be mature, that he's willing to get into that hard stuff, right? He gets into that hard stuff right after his section, and the reason is because he's hopeful that you and I are able to press through it, right? That God will permit it. So if this sermon lands heavy on you, if you feel convicted by it, that's probably good. That's probably good. That's what God wants from this passage. But don't forget where that resolve comes from. In verse 3, it's very clear. That resolve, that desire, right, that ability to kind of press in comes from the Lord. The quest for maturity is really the quest to see more of God. And what God wants us to do is to grow up. And the reason isn't because God is this chiding teacher, even though I might have kind of embodied that for the last hour or so. The reason is because he wants to be generous with us. He wants to give you more of him. And we get to do that if God permits, and he will. We need to rely on God, his work, even his permission. We need his spirit to understand his word, right? As we go on towards maturity, the promise from the Lord is that he will help us to do this. God desires to show us his goodness through his knowledge. I mean, Ross preached so well last Sunday night. When we talk about Jeremiah 31, 33, right? God's promised that he will put his teaching within us and write it on our hearts. That he will be our God and we will be his people, right? That same God that freed us from our sin will free us from the sins of laziness to be able to obey, to help us see the value of Jesus that we couldn't see before to motivate us to, to grow up. The same God who nursed us while we were spiritual babies with milk will be the same one who encourages us to get up and guide us towards maturity. In his word, through his spirit. Because when we take the time to think and to look, we don't just learn more. We don't get magic kind of doctoral degrees that we hang up on our wall that we never look at. What we get is more of Christ, his beauty, his glory, and Jesus is always worth it. Let's pray.
Lord, we need you to help us as we press on towards maturity. So we ask God that you would convict us if there are those here that are held captive by the sin of laziness, that you would wake them up by your spirit and your word. That they would climb out of their diapers and, and live the mature life that you expect of them. And for us, as we continue to press on and see more of you, we want to see your glory. So help us to press our noses into our books, to, to look into your word and to see your beauty. We want to see more of you. So we ask that you would help us. And we ask this in, in your name, in Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen.